The Lord is my shepherd. I don't like a thing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and leads me beside places where the water is still. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteous places for the sake of His own name. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid, not afraid of any evil. Because you, because you are with me. Rod, your staff, they comfort me. You you prepare this table before me in the presence of my enemies. You, You anoint my head with oil so that it dribbles down into my beard, my cup overflows with your blessing. Certainly, goodness and mercy, they they follow me around all the days of my life. And, and, I dwell in the house built by your own hands forever. (coughs) Reflections on Psalm 23. It's been a privilege for me to hang around these few days here on the Ozark campus. To engage with the students who are here, it is a rich experience for me, for sure. I've come to love the people and respect the ministry and the work that happens in this place. This is a phenomenal, a phenomenal encounter that you engage. And Mark, to live in your shadow is just a richness, constantly. I appreciate that. And it's fun to join you for worship today. It's a great privilege. You are aware that I am under assignment this morning. The series of the Psalms is attempting to tackle our feelings. Apparently, the people in this one room want to talk about their feelings. (laughs) That should be good. I'd have to tell you that I am far more practiced at concealing feelings than I am at revealing feelings. But the chapel committee decided that it was important to talk about our feelings, and so we'll give that a shot. President Proctor landed and launched this series a week ago. Here's actually the list that they provided me so that I could have some context on on where this series was heading. And when I received it, I began looking down the list and I started to feel something. The names on the list are mostly familiar to you. Proctor, Scott, Ragsdale, Hayford, DeWelt, all O.C.C. Pillars. There is but one Gentile on the list. To him was given the topic of fear. My imagination was triggered. I'm wondering why the Ozark nobles assigned to me the subject of fear. I pictured them around a table in a closed door room. From their secure location, deep underground in a bunker, they engaged this top secret tactical strategies for chapel sessions this fall. One by one, these high-ranking Ozark bureaucrats select their individual assignments, and while all of them have been chosen, one still remains. Fear. Who is best to deal with feelings of fear? Where is the scaredy cat among us? They look around the room. No one qualifies. No one at the table fits the description. These are noble men. These are revered leaders, well-known champions, risk takers who carve out a wide highway. And so then it hits me. These champions must be looking for someone who is not so champion. 
Who could best speak from the heart of terror, whose hands tremble when he stands behind a public pulpit? Who might be known for his paranoia, his obsession with suspicion? Who's a model of apprehension? Who teeters on the edge of panic? Who's convinced we're talking about him even when we're not? Who's best to preach from a place of fear? I'm sure that's what happened. I know that's what they're thinking. Do you think they're mocking me even as I stand here today? Do you think I'm paranoid? You're probably right. They've given me this subject of fear. I wonder what that means. As soon as I was invited to address the subject of fear, I began to feel it. Fear causes us to do strange things. There is a spider known as a widow. She is the black widow. She's been given her name because of a strange instinct within her that causes her to kill her own mate. She doesn't appear to do it purposely. You see, she's blind. And in her blindness, she reacts to fear and movement on her web. And as her mate attempts to leave after mating, he disturbs the web. And it causes the female spider to react out of instinct. She thinks it's an enemy intruding on her private domain. And so she attacks and kills something that she cannot see. And from that point on, she lives her life alone, probably wondering why she has to be a widow. Fear causes us to do strange things. Ever heard of Jim Bernard? I listened first when Roy Lawson was sharing the events around Jim's life. One day at his work, he accidentally got locked into a railroad refrigeration car. He was not wearing clothing appropriate for cold weather. He had only street clothes. And when he realized that the door had snapped shut and that there was no way out, he, he, became, he became frantic. He, he started scratching and pounding, screaming at the top of his lungs, hoping that someone would come and rescue him. Nobody came. He was exhausted quickly. He started shivering uncontrollably. He slumped into a corner. He knew no human being could survive long in those frigid conditions. He took out a pen out of his pocket. He began to scrawl out his last words on the wall. And I'm quoting now. I am becoming very cold. I don't have long to live. I can tell that death is close. I can feel it very near. These may well be my last words. They were. Jim Bernard died there. A few hours later, the refrigeration car was opened, and from the outside, those who walked in discovered Jim on the inside. And they were stunned. They learned that the refrigeration unit on that car had not been working for quite some time. The temperature in the car was 58 degrees. There was plenty of oxygen. He didn't freeze to death. He did not suffocate. He died because in his mind he decided that he was in a helpless situation and fear killed him. I mean, how do you put that in medical terms as cause of death for a certificate? I bet your lips have spoken the words, scared to death, but you never really thought about the possibilities. One dead man in a railroad car and the only murderer was fear. 
Fear causes us to do strange things. By the time you are five years old, you have learned the grip of fear. Jammies on, teeth brushed, dirty clothes stuffed down a laundry chute. And there the ritual for a five-year-old begins. With the lights on and daddy's still in the room, there are a few things that need to be checked out before the darkness is allowed to take over. One more look in the closet just to make sure that only clothes and shoes are hiding in there. Don't remember where you heard it, but you heard it for sure. But sometimes you know that, that monsters like to hide in five-year-old's closets. But if you can look in the closet when daddy is still around and the light is still on, monsters can't get in there. Plug in the night light, turn on the switch, over to the bed you go, down on one knee, stretch out, bend your neck, look under the bed. Peeking under there, you see only things you've seen before. A ragged, stuffed teddy bear, a few toys that decided to meander too far back to reach. A couple of those mysterious little dust kitties that like to float about. Not sure about those little kitties who are sometimes there, sometimes not. Mommy says that they are warm fuzzies of love. Mommy likes to have lots of warm fuzzies around. Jump into bed, covers pulled high, prayers said, kisses, kisses, tickles and kisses. Daddy goes out, lights go off, and all the places that you just checked are once more threatening. Thought you heard something coming from the closet over there. Daddy, could you come in here? I think something's moving over there. It's okay, little buddy. We just checked it, remember? Covers up tight against your chin, thinking about worrying about what danger lurks in yonder darkness. Finally, apprehension is overcome by fatigue and ultimately slumber while both monsters and a five-year-old drift off to sleep. Irrational? Probably. Real? Oh, absolutely. Many nights as a father of four and a grandfather of seven, I've stared into those five-year-olds. Those monsters may be imaginary, but I tell you what, the fear is very real. But surely you've noticed that our fears did not abandon us when we stopped being five years old. I don't like to admit it, and neither do you. But quite regularly, I still hear some rattling in my closet, some, some commotion under my bed. Afraid I won't meet the standard. Afraid I won't measure up. Afraid I will fail. Afraid I won't stay healthy. Afraid they won't like me. Or I'm afraid about getting married. Or maybe I'm afraid that I never will. Afraid about making foolish choices. Afraid about the health of an aging parent. Afraid about a teenage son who's making foolish choices. Or maybe I'm afraid that my job won't last. Or, Or maybe I'm wondering if it's going to go on like this forever. Afraid of doing what God really wants me to do. Uh, Curious about whether it's really going to turn out the way He imagined it. Two o'clock in the morning, staring at the ceiling, wondering about the things that are making noise in my closet. Irrational? Probably. Real? Absolutely. But today we read into a psalm that's actually not about fear. This psalm is about no fear. I wonder why. The Lord is my shepherd. It's unusual to find opposing concepts in such close proximity. Lord, shepherd, those are usually not teammates. Lord has to do with rulership and authority. 
Lord has to do with master, the one in control. It has universal implications. It stretches astronomically from, from one galaxy to the next. It descends microscopically to the atomic and subatomic realms. Lord, over all things, wide and high as far as you can imagine, deep and tiny and minuscule as you could understand. It's what the Apostle Paul was defining when he wrote Philippians chapter 2, verse 10 and following, that at the name of Jesus, every, 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 did I mention every knee should bow? And then he begins to, to point out the whereabouts of those knee-buckled creatures in heaven. The angelic legions, the seraphim, the cherubim, every martyred saint beneath a champion's altar. And don't you forget that large cloud of witnesses who cheer you on from an eternal stadium. Everyone gets it. Jesus Christ is Lord. But it's not only there. On earth, it's the billions who have occupied this planet during their meager few decades here. Even the most obnoxious and atheistic rebels will face the reality. The time of convincing approaches. And under the earth, the demonic hordes, Satan's minions, and certainly the master deceiver himself, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every realm included. No jurisdiction missed, no territory beyond His reach and influence. Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. But do not miss the oddity to this opening line. That Lord takes on the menial task of a personal shepherd. Caretaker, uh, the one who bears up and encourages. Shepherd, it has to do with companion and, and guardian. Uh, the Hebrew word is a utilitarian concept that describes one who has this knack for pasturing. Someone's got to pose the question. How do you get those who need to be fed to a place where they can find feeding? Uh, the shepherd is the one who survives and brings upon the critical mission of uh, spanning the distance from there to here. Which, which is just what the Lord, shepherd, is doing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me beside still waters. Can't you see it? On the stream's edge where the water is still, green grass beneath you as a bed. It's hard to imagine, but wonderful to consider. The peaceful place where the text says, your soul, your soul, my soul is restored. There's a great deal of encouraging writing by gifted authors taking place in our current day regarding the care of the soul. Soul care is a growing and thoughtful division of study. Seminaries fashion degrees around such a thing these days because life is more than the care of the body and the satisfaction of appetite. It is a deeper place where the human condition is influenced, even altered. The soul. Dallas Willard writes this, so rich. Our soul is it's like an inner stream of water, which gives strength, direction, and harmony to every other element of our life. And when the stream is as it should be, we are constantly refreshed and exuberant in all we do because our soul itself is profusely rooted in the vastness of God. 
and His kingdom, including nature. And all else within us is enlivened and directed by that stream. The Lord, shepherd, restores my soul. It's a supernatural movement implemented in the most natural and practical means. But for many of us, a restored soul is something we really struggle to imagine. A few days ago, I was sitting at a table with a new friend. We were one-on-one for breakfast when he took on the conversation and launched. It had to do with events that took place when he was six years old and, and eight years old where he was abused by a family member. And then he went on to talk about some neighborhood teenagers who victimized him when he was in his adolescence. From there he told of being at a Christian camp where a respected minister and counselor made use of him for his own distortion. And the more he described, the more it became apparent to me that he he wasn't defining works done against his human body so much as he was telling out loud the wounds upon his soul. You see, he's now past 60 years of age. More than four decades have gone by since these intrusions. His body has long since mended from injuries inflicted. It is the wounds of the soul that he was unfolding. Yet he didn't just want to parade past episodes. He was accounting for what the Lord Shepherd was newly reaching in his life. Deep places. Incredible things like redemption and and value actually collide, where, where forgiveness unloads the tonnage to which you have been chained. Things that are a supernatural movement coming down to enter into human depth. They are the places of the human soul that only the Lord Shepherd can reach. I want to widen that out for just a moment. Only the Lord Shepherd can reach some of the places in your soul. I praise God for those who are trained in the medical profession, whose brilliance facilitates the needs of the physical body. And I praise God for the giftedness of psychiatric care and those who seek to alter patterns of thought process and realign behaviors. But I'll tell you what, those of you who are called to ministry have the privilege of reaching into the space where the MD and the PhD are often left in shallow water unless they too are servants of Christ. The deepest place of the human soul is where identity is ordered and wholeness overtakes fractured places. It is the Lord Shepherd who reaches there. And you in pastoral care are guiding them far beyond the healing place where the soul actually locates its renewal. It's the human soul that needs the most attention. This song, it's about the human soul. Something happens in verse 4. There's a change of language that reflects a change in distance. Where in the early phrases of this psalm, we hear the Lord Shepherd being described as though he was being talked about to another. Like you're informing someone else about what you've noticed about him. He makes me lie down. He leads me into paths of righteousness and beside still water. All of it sounds like you're attempting to describe him to someone else. But in verse 4, You are no longer talking to someone else about Him. You are talking to Him. 
Distance erased. It's getting personal. And well, it should be, for now we are standing on the precipice edge of our greatest fear, that shadowed ravine where the odor of death is pungent. Even though I walk through this valley, the shadow of death, I am not not afraid because of you. Not some third-person explanation of the activity of the Lord's shepherd. This has become a conversation. It's, it's with you. You are with me. And the evidence is everywhere. Your rod, staff, table, oil, cup, each of them are resourced by the hand of the Lord's shepherd, providing everything that was needed. You showed up for me. You showed up for me. Your rod, your staff, I, I see you setting the table in the presence of it. You anointed my head with oil. You are messing with your blessing. The cup, the nectar of goodness reaches to the brim of the cup and you keep pouring. It runs over to make such a wonderful mess. It's you, you messy blesser, you! <laughs> So instead of fear, there is no fear. Brought about by a confidence in life and death and in eternity, surely, certainly, goodness and mercy. They, they follow me around all the days of my life. Sometimes they don't let them catch me, but they follow me. I know, I, I feel it. And I will dwell in the house prepared by your very hands forever. The Lord's shepherd, supernaturally restoring the shattered soul, strips fear of its most aggressive threat. Death claims no victory. Death lacks a sting because of you, Lord Shepherd, because of you. I wish I could tell you that I really get that. I do believe these things in my mind, but honestly, it's taken a while to reach my soul. I was 23 years old, married, no kids yet. We were visiting my wife's parents in Minnesota. Went to church with them on a Sunday morning. Paula, my wife, her dad, got up to share the communion meditation. He was a sharp guy, uh, trained as an engineer. He'd been an elder in that church for years, but today his words were getting stuck. He stumbled uncharacteristically, froze and stuttered. It was very strange. On that day, we noticed that something was wrong. It, it was. Uh, the weeks that followed produced a diagnosis. Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, a neurodegenerative disease. See, the nerves die, which incapacitate the muscles. It took his ability to talk first and then to, to swallow. His hands soon became limp, his legs still. In 18 months, his entire body slowly diminishing muscle movement. Even the ability to swell his own chest for a breath was gone. On the day that he died, I remember an angry prayer. I, I mean, I'm so sorry to admit to you that at times I pray angry prayers. They're, they're prayers of confusion and hurt and frustration and an anxious heart. The prayers I, I could never repeat in a public place. The kind of prayers so disrespectful that they should not be granted an answer. But this one was. Strangely, an answer came. And this was the answer. Dave, this world is not your home. That answer rocked me. 
Uh, not just because uh, someone I loved was gone, but because I was 23 years old. I was just starting on my own course, building busily my little kingdom, forming life with all of its components that are supposed to make me comfortable and even important in the eyes of other people. I was pouring in hours and days and months and years trying to make this environment secure and enjoyable for my family about my faulty fantasy about life that I'm headed toward perfect. That's what you owe me, God, right? The perfect life. I deserve it, don't I? I was pouring in my energy to make the perfect life. When reality of life and godly truth screamed into my soul, Dave, this world, it is not your home. It happened again when I was 31. Now two sons in our house, the oldest boy, a six-year-old. Some of our friends call, dearest friends call, they have a six-year-old son of their own. And over the phone, they started talking about stomach pain, some problem for their son. Within a flash, we were in a surgery waiting room. A surgeon comes through the door. He escorts us to a private place. He describes an incision opening up the stomach to reveal a cancer so invasive that every single organ was fully engulfed. He closed him up. In hours, the little boy was gone. My next memory is standing in a pulpit in a packed room, looking down into the hollow face of my friend and his wife in the front row trying to explain the actions of a God and the horrors of life in its most unexplainable seasons. Those angry prayers, I was praying them again. The kind of prayers so disrespectful that they should not be granted an answer, but strangely, an answer came. Dave, this world is not your home. That answer rocked me out. I was 31 years old. I was fully launched on my own course, busy building my own growing kingdom, forming life with all the components that are supposed to make me comfortable and even important in the eyes of other people. That's what God owes me, right? The perfect life. I deserve that. I was pouring my energy into forming the perfect life. When life, reality, and godly truth screamed into my soul, Dave, this world... It is not your home. To be honest with you, it has taken some time to accommodate such an answer from the Lord. It actually wars within me and against what others think and what they are modeling. I mean, it messes with my ego. It confronts my life goals. Should I really be pouring all of my life energy into making this place feel like home, even though I know it never will be? Nine years ago, another strange set of events occurred. During that year, I stood in two pulpits to eulogize two men who were my dearest friends. Two men in my inner circle. (laughs) My inner circle is pretty small. Two guys gone. Didn't leave very much. They were both accountability partners who knew more about me than I would ever let you know. They died four months apart. Rick, in his closing days, he was granted stunning visions of what awaited. The Lord Shepherd was doing exactly what is described. Rick's longing swelled in front of me. The valley of the shadow was fearless, completely fear gone. And I heard it in his words, Dave, I so want... To go home. 
And then my friend David, my dear friend since college, just months before we had taken a mission trip together to India, preaching and teaching, baptizing people in the southern state of Kerala. I can still see us perched together on the top of that big elephant for a ride. It was a vivid image in my mind. One morning he got up, had his routine quiet time. He showered, he slipped on his shirt and his trousers, and then he sat down on the bed to put on his socks and shoes. And right there, right there, he collapsed and was gone. Barefoot as he was heading into heaven. Fully appropriate, I suppose. For a man needs no shoes when he's preparing to stand on holy ground. But I wasn't praying angry prayers anymore. No harsh words scolding God about his arrangements. No disappointment that God had somehow confused things and made a mistake. He didn't know what he was doing. The anger of previous year had been transformed by understanding of faith and clarity and even fully more surrender. The Lord's shepherd was, was reaching even my soul. Do you know what's developed in me? It's a strange craving. Craving. Craving for home. And it's not just geography, it's, well, it's presence. God's presence. I, I no longer crave needing to be admired in your eyes or needing to make some sub, uh, temporary mark on this planet. Craving is growing in me for home. I mean, it's taken a while for me to get there. And, I, and it's been some rough sledding on certain days for sure. But the craving is real and it seems to swell in my spirit every day. I'm overwhelmed by the words of the Apostle Peter. I share them with you in the form of a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson. First Peter 2. Friends, this world is not your home. So don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudices. And then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. Is there a craving for God's presence swelling in you? My, my, my soul seems to be finding a, a resting place. The Lord Shepherd is right. Goodness and mercy are the very things that have followed me, pursued me virtually every day of my life. And, and, I dwell in a building built by the hands of the Maker Himself, an open door that's creating in me a craving. Fear is being overtaken by craving because of you, Lord Shepherd. Because of you. Heavenly Father, would you commend these truths to our minds and hearts? In the awkwardness of a broken life and wounded souls that enter this place, restore us as only you can. Through Jesus Christ we pray. 
Amen.